Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. For decades, the American sports betting industry was only accessible via CD backrooms and offshore bank accounts. But after a 2018 Supreme Court ruling, betting on your favorite team is as easy as pressing a button on your phone. In over half of the United States, sports gambling is legal and it's getting more popular by the minute. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we explore the bustling legal world of sports betting. Coming up, we'll speak to a gambling researcher on the impact of sports betting on problem gaming. And later, Indian casinos are major players in the gambling market. So how are tribes responding to the introduction of sports betting? But first, we're going to try to understand how in just four years, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell went from saying this in 2017. I think society in general has a little bit of a change as respect to gambling in general. Uh, We've seen that. I think we still strongly oppose in that room and otherwise uh, legalized sports gambling. Uh, The integrity of our game is number one. We will not compromise on that to saying this just last year. The gaming, it's another way for people to engage. Yeah. Fantasy football became a crazy thing. Um, And that's a form of this in some ways, which is another way for people to engage. They would watch a game to the end because they were watching their fantasy player, even if their team, you know. It's mind boggling. It really is. It is, but I think this is another extension of that. Our guest, Doug Kazarian, is sports betting analyst for ESPN. He's host of the sports betting show, Daily Wager. Doug, welcome to Disrupted. It's good to be on with you. Thank you for having me. You know, I want to talk about sports betting because even though it's been legalized nationally back in 2018, this isn't new. Sports gambling has a long history here in the U.S. Talk to our listeners about that historical relationship between sports and the gambling industry. You know, that's a great point that you made, that sports betting wasn't invented four years ago when the federal ban was removed by the Supreme Court, now allowing states to go ahead and proceed accordingly. We're at about 35 states, give or take, right now that have legalized sports betting. But it's been going on for decades. And there's always been sort of the game within the game is what it is. And it's just another way to kind of talk about sports through the lens of betting. Think of it as like analytics. Right. The, the, the basic point spread is often considered just kind of a predictor of the margin of victory. And it sort of levels the playing field. So golf has handicaps. Right. It's what's your handicap? Oh, I'm a five or I'm a 10 or I'm a whatever. That's really the term that we use in betting is how are you handicapping the game? It just levels the playing field. So it's always been involved in our lives. It's just sports betting was separate. Then other things just it was so so under the radar and back rooms it was considered because there was a federal ban and and we had to operate accordingly, whether it be networks and leagues and everything. But it's been going on for a long time, obviously in Nevada, but it's really just another way to kind of add excitement to the game. In Europe, the European model, it's very much more accepted, less stigma, and it is just part of the entertainment uh, of it all. It's it's just it's just another layer of added of 
excitement to the game if you are invested a certain way. So in, in here in the States, there's still a stigma, but it's obviously eroded since the federal ban was removed four years ago. You mentioned the game within the game. And one of the areas where this has come up quite a bit have been has been in Major League Baseball. And of course, you can't talk about the MLB and gambling and sports betting without talking about the Pete Rose scandal. What do you think was the impact of that particular scandal, not just within the sport of professional baseball, but overall when we talk about that stigma and that shame associated with sports betting? Well, the key with Pete Rose is he was involved in the games, right? He was managing, and although he denies, I forget where his denials are right now because he's changed so much over the years, but he did finally admit to betting on games. He just claims that he never did his own team. That was the thing because we we all want the purity and sanctity of the game to remain intact. The leagues want that. The gaming operators want that. No one wants foul play or funny business going on. I think Pete Rose is an isolated incident. I don't think leagues are concerned with that. Um, I don't think betters are concerned with that. I think it was really an isolated case. And nowadays, with the salaries, what they are now, whether it be managers or players, the, the money is just so high that no one is going to risk anything along those lines to jeopardize their, their, their careers and their, their reputation. But you're right. Like There is a stigma. It is indirectly probably more than directly or subconsciously does weigh because because anytime there's something like that it just kind of can reinforce the stigma even though it's an isolated situation with a guy who obviously is you know synonymous with with baseball in so many ways because of the base hit i I do think the leagues were 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 wise to have caution they are multi-billion dollar industries and when there's a federal ban on sports betting, they could not get involved. And they were very careful and protective of their product, and rightfully so. But now that's obviously changed since the federal ban has been removed. But it is interesting to see the leagues and now become more knowledgeable about the sports betting space. And I used the analogy earlier about analytics. They've become more understanding of it, that it doesn't have to be this seedy industry or anything silly like that. It's it's. It's an interesting sort of conversation about their sport, and they've become more and more receptive to learning more about it, and I give them a lot of credit for that. Before we talk about how the different leagues are navigating this new terrain and really figuring out how they can benefit, I want to go to something you said about Pete Rose being this isolated case. I want to talk about a more recent example of a player who did put his career in jeopardy, and I'm thinking there of Calvin Ridley, who was wide receiver for the Falcons, suspended indefinitely after betting on his own team while he was injured. Given the high-stakes contracts, given all that he had to lose, what do you think about leagues continuing to enforce those prohibitions? Should players be able to bet on the games, or is it, as you said, sort of reinforcing the stigma around the seediness that the the leagues want to preserve the purity of the sport? I think it was like a kind of a good thing that happened. I think it brought stuff to the forefront and reminded players the severity of the situation. From my understanding, Ridley was doing something stupid not shady if that makes sense he wasn't like involved in the games like you said he was out injured and he was incorporating them in like huge 10 team parlay i think he was just like he kind of just had a brain cramp and didn't realize what he was doing i think he was just bored like doing some silly stuff i don't think he was you know calling on pay phones and making all these backroom deals and trying to make a huge score and throwing the game or anything ridiculous like that i think 
you probably, if you have to ask the league, hey, this is you know your worst thing that's going to happen involving betting, they'd be like, all right, sign me up. I do not think better, better or players should be able to bet on their own sport. I do not think an NFL player should be able to bet on NFL games, even if it's a game not involving his team. I have no problem if they want to bet in the offseason on like an NBA game or a soccer match. But but you, but you it raises a question like in theory, like they're involved in fantasy leagues, right? Like they're involved in certain investment, if you will, on a player's performance. And now I don't think it's at all impacting their behavior in the games or their their playing. And uh, that wouldn't be that would be crazy to suggest. But I, I think it just to keep it cleaner and safer for all parties involved. I think it's smart to not have players allowed to bet on their own sport. I think that would be too much. Let's move away from talking about the players to talking about the leagues who, after years of enforcing these bans, being very resistant in many ways, over the last four years, NBA, MLB, NHL have all signed these massive deals with some of the country's biggest sports books. So after years of that denouncement, what was the change and how do you think leagues see their new approach to sports gambling? Well, I think there's a few steps. First and foremost is what I mentioned earlier, which was the federal ban on sports betting being lifted. So once that federal ban PASPA was lifted in 2018, it allowed the states to operate and proceed if they so wish moving forward. So once that federal ban, I mean, if it's against the federal law, like the leagues can't get involved, but now they can. So they started to learn more. And I was, you know, somewhat communicative with some league um, executives and they were very curious and open-minded to how it would all look and not have it be hoopla and nonsense or anything that like reeks of something that'd be fishy or, or silly. They've done a nice job about being very open-minded about this space that they really knew nothing about because of the federal ban. They were not interested in trying to dip their toe there because they had to respect the federal law. And so once the federal law was or the ban was removed, they became more and more. And then they've understood that gaming operators want fair play just as much as they do. They're, the, the fans can can embrace betting in, a, in an appropriate way. And, you know, some people want to look at betting as like a vice, like alcohol or cigarettes or whatever and there's really no reason why one thing is banned and the others isn't so if you're going to have um advertisers of beer companies in your stadium or on your broadcasts why can't betting also be in that in that family i think it's a work in progress but i think they understand that the federal law component is no longer a barrier so they're now open to the idea of, of advertising dollars and really delivering what the fan wants. I mean, it's a big part of their TV ratings and other elements that lead to other dollars because of the interest that betting keeps a fan either watching or consuming their product, whereas the game might be at hand or stuff. So it's always been part of the reason they, these, these leagues have been successful in, in various ways, and now they're sort of embracing it and trying to, like I said, be inclusive, not necessarily exclusive to others. You know, it's interesting when we think about fans who say, I don't want any politics in sports. I want to be able to enjoy the game, whatever that game is, and not worry about the political aspect. But so much of what you've just said, Doug, relates to removing this federal ban and how it opened up opportunities. And in opening up opportunities for betting, we also have to think about opening up opportunities for increasing profit and revenue. There are some critics who will look at this and say, these organizations have a conflict of interest, that while you're having commentary from people like Troy Aikman and A-Rod, 
they will also be encouraging people to participate in in betting or gaming. Do you think that networks, you mentioned, you know, cigarettes and alcohol advertisements, do you think networks should be involved in regulating how we talk about gambling in sports? Or do you think that we should follow the lead of what the fans want and not try to overregulate what's happening? Yeah, I think the last part is fine. I, I don't I don't know if like a broadcaster's encouraging any betting or anything like that. I, I think the broadcaster is delivering his insight if he's an analyst and a play-by-play guy and maybe the play-by-play guy might incorporate the point spread but only as an analytic such as this is the first time the whatever team has been favored you know whatever it's it's another way to convey the context of the situation and then maybe at the end of the game they might mention something but i don't know if it's necessarily encouraging anything i mean i guess you could say a commercial encourages just like a commercial for jeans would encourage purchasing the jeans, but you know, anything in excess is, is unhealthy, right? We have workaholics, we have shopaholics, we have hoarders. I mean, there's oh, there's stuff that when done in moderation and responsibly is totally fine and appropriate. And, and betting was sort of singled out and had this federal ban for so many years, whereas all this other stuff did not. I mean, at some point you just have to let people be themselves and be an adult and you can't always protect them from themselves. Yes, we ha- should have laws in the country and all that stuff, but, at some point, you know, you just let it go and see what happens and the invisible hand sort of sort of will work itself out. But I, I have by no means been, I don't know, offended or turned off by any sort of content or saturation of content of betting in the broadcast. But I'm also, you know, in the space. So I'm also desensitized a little bit. I think in due time, the the networks and the leagues want to deliver the right product to their fans. But they're, they're, they're figuring it out as they go along. You've been in this space for quite a while. You, you know, as you said, are part of this space, but also able to see the long view from how things started to where they are today. As we look ahead, what do you see there as the future of sports betting? And what should we be looking for as fans? That's the million dollar question, right? Like, what's this going to look like? I mean, I think it looks very different now than it did two, three years ago. And so what's it going to look like? I don't know if there's going to be a ton of fans in the stadiums, you know, betting on the games on their phones. I don't know where betting is going to go. I think the numbers are getting increasingly high. Obviously, New York is one of the big states that has such a high sort of hold percentage, which is the profit for the, the gaming operators. If and when Florida, California and Texas follow suit, I think we'll learn a lot more with those big states. But for the most part, I'm I'm of the belief it may not look much different now than it will in five to ten years. I don't know if we're going to have gaming operators with advertisers on jerseys. I I, I think there's going to be guidelines and structures in place where, like I alluded to earlier, that there is a limit to commercials. You can't have every commercial being a sports book, right? And then also leagues and, and teams have certain partnerships, some exclusive, some not necessarily exclusive so you can't have everything all the time i do think we'll have more sports bars slash casinos slash sports books in arenas i think it's going to become more and more accepted but i also don't think we're going to have a complete nation of betting and all this stuff and everyone does it every day like we like we brush our teeth in the morning i I don't think it'll get to that extreme i still think it's not for everyone but it's for some people and for those it's it is for great and if not great too it's not a big deal So I don't think we're going to see drastic, drastic changes. The changes we're seeing 
is in some of the consumer's behavior, but also just the leagues and stuff being more on board. But I think there's a ceiling to that as well. Doug Kazarian is sports betting analyst for ESPN. He's host of the sports betting show Daily Wager. Thanks, Doug. You got it. Thank you for having me. After the break, researcher Leah Nauer on how sports betting caters to a younger audience. And later, what does the future of Indian gaming look like? This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. A lot of people struggle with sleep apnea and with CPAP machines. Dr. Carl Muller, a head and neck surgeon with Hartford Hospital, describes Inspire, a surgical alternative to the CPAP approach. Only about 60% of patients can tolerate CPAP real well. Inspire is a surgical alternative to CPAP. It's an outpatient surgery. It takes about two hours. And essentially what it does is it picks up when you're taking a breath and sends a two-second electrical pulse to the tongue, which causes the tongue to stick out a little bit and stiffen and prevent the airway from collapsing. Hartford Hospital has performed more than 200 Inspire therapy surgeries. If you've tried and failed with CPAP, you could be a candidate for this minimally invasive procedure. Patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea are candidates. There is a weight criteria, so you have to have a body mass index below 35, and you have to have to have tried and failed CPAP. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week on the show, we're exploring the fast-growing world of sports betting. Later, we'll talk to Professor Derek Bietzow on the future of sovereignty and the Indian gaming market. Sports betting is quickly becoming a favorite activity for many Americans. According to a recent report from Morning Consult, one in five Americans said that they bet on sports at least once a month. That's an 80% increase from just one year earlier. But with that increase in gambling comes an increased possibility that many people are struggling with addiction. Dr. Leah Nauer is Director of Gambling Studies at Rutgers University. She's also co-director of the university's Addiction Counselor Training Program. Leah, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having me. You know, we've been talking about gambling addictions, not just in the U.S., but really across the world for centuries. This isn't a new issue. And there have been legal efforts, social efforts to curb this. And what makes this time so different is modern technology that makes gaming easier than before. Talk to our listeners about the landscape of gambling addiction in the U.S. today. Well, we have a lot of states that have rushed to legalize all different forms of gambling. So where people could just would have to drive a distance to a location that was just open for X number of hours. Now it's 24 seven on your mobile phone. Unlike other addictions where at some point you can only use so many drugs or only drink so much alcohol before you pass out or before someone recognizes it. Gambling is a hidden addiction. I can be sitting there gambling away my house and my cars in my living room on my mobile phone while I'm watching, you know, cartoons with my kids. 
It's now been four years since sports betting was legalized, and there have been a number of studies that have shown that the risk of addiction or the risk for this spectrum of disorder is higher for sports bettors than for other forms of gambling. What does your average sports better look like, and what is it about sports betting that is so addictive? So sports bettors are much younger and much more male than what we see in a comparable online gambling environment, such as you know slots and online blackjack or poker. It, it tends to start much younger. And what we know is the younger someone starts, the more types of activities they gamble on, and the more they do it, the more likely they are to develop a problem. So we have a whole generation of kids and adolescents and emerging adults who are being primed for gambling on sports at a very young age. And in our own work, in our own studies, you know, we've found that a lot of these kids are gambling on their parents' accounts with their permission. I'm shocked (laughs) as a parent and as an educator and thinking about you know, this sort of development, that impulse control of younger people and the ways that as parents, you know, we're socialized to think about other addictions, you know, recreational drug use. We think about addiction in that way. But what you're saying is people are doing this younger. They often have the permission of their parents or adults who are in their lives. And that if they are developing these behaviors at a younger age, there's also a greater potential for harm and damage there. What are some things that parents or, again, adults, teachers should be watching for or doing in order to address what you said is this problem that tends to be with younger people in sports betting? Well, the first thing is they need to recognize that gambling is can be an addiction like anything else. What we find, we did a study with 2,300 social workers that were actually direct practitioners And we found that more than 70% gambled themselves, and some of them actually had gambling problems, but 60% of the ones who gambled denied gambling. They don't think things like lottery tickets or raffles or a lot of the things that they do, the term gambling has a negative connotation. So gambling is betting money on, on a risky outcome with the potential to win more. But people don't like to label themselves as gamblers, and so they're not recognizing their own behavior. So it's very hard then to translate that to recognizing that in their children. When we think about the stigma, the social stigma that's associated with addiction broadly, but also in particular with betting and gambling, I'm always thinking about what are the other forms, these sort of daily activities. You mentioned, for example, playing lottery tickets. What are these daily activities that people engage in that they may or may not recognize as a part of a concern? And one of those areas is in daily fantasy sports. So even before states allowed sports betting or or made it officially legal, these daily fantasy sports were quite popular. And I imagine quite popular with many of the same demographics that you mentioned earlier. Is there a connection between the rise in popularity of daily fantasy betting and sports betting and challenges more broadly? Definitely. I mean, daily fantasy sports exploited a loophole in the federal legislation that was designed to to protect people who just did yearly office pools, you know, and that for 
you know, the NFL or whatever. It was never designed to, for this daily action turnover activity that's, that's very, that's gambling. And so these, these DFS platforms were built on sports betting platforms, which is why they so fast were able to flip as soon as sports betting was legalized. And in one of our studies, 95% of those who gambled on daily fantasy sports also bet on sports. You mentioned being a clinician and being involved, not just in identifying these behaviors, but also trying to help people through them. And as I'm listening to you think about, you know, sports and fantasy betting, and I'm thinking about the tremendous number of companies and offices and departments that encourage this behavior, whether it's the Super Bowl. And so now we need to have an office pool or other ways that gambling has become so socially accepted and in many ways encouraged by the very institutions or organizations who are supposed to think about the best interest of their employees and their members overall. Has that level of social acceptance and really encouragement made it more difficult for clinicians and therapists who are trying to help people treat these addictions, but even see that it's a problem? Definitely. We are where, if you ever watch the show Mad Men, where everybody had a bar in their office and were, you know, drunk by noon, you know, we are now with gambling where we were with alcohol in the Mad Men era. People just, they're not at work. We had, we had some preliminary figures from one of our studies that showed 30% of the people that were gambling were gambling at work. And they're gambling on their phones. They're gambling on their work computers where these sites are not blocked from the server. Schools, it's a huge problem in schools. I mean, if two kids were sitting there snorting cocaine, I can guarantee you some teachers would come over and see what's going on. But kids can be sitting there playing card games for money whether the money's visible or not, and nobody thinks anything of it. You know, I visited a class some years ago at another institution, and I sat in the back of the room because I didn't want to intrude on the conversation. And as I scanned the class from the back of the room, there were at least six students who were gambling as the professor is giving a lecture. And in that moment, I felt like, well, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. This is legal, but as you said, is a sign that there may be a bigger problem there. And I think often we don't know what to do or we don't know what to intervene. And yet we see other countries that have actually made affirmative steps to curtail some of this and to, in particular, protect young people and encourage industry not to interfere with young people's development. What do you think the U.S. can learn from other countries like the U.K. or things that are happening in other places across the world about regulating the industry, but also protecting people who are exposed to the industry? To my mind, this should be like a three-legged stool. The responsibility should be shared across operators, regulators, and individuals. In the U.S., it's a one-legged stool. Even the self-exclusion contracts where people you know, say I have a problem, so I have to ban myself. A lot of them say, you understand that this is solely your responsibility to not enter. And and the operators have no liability to even try to keep you out. Now, in the UK, they say, well, wait a minute. You have a social responsibility because you're making a lot of money. And with sports betting, it's a little more spread out. So for example, in New Jersey, 
4% of all the sports bettors place 30% of all the bets and wager about 46% of the money. With online gambling, it's much higher. About 5% of the people are, are placing 75% of the bets and spending 65% of the money. So there is a disincentive for operators to really put and enforce limits on people's gambling. And in the UK now, they're getting just draconian fines for allowing people to gamble. And they've just introduced these affordability guidelines. I'm not sure if you are familiar with those. Let's talk about those. Let's talk about those affordability guidelines. So how they're going to work, it's too early because they don't go into effect till September. But the way that it's going to work is basically they're saying, look, you know people's credit histories. You then have a duty to use it for good and not for evil, which is if you have a person gambling who you know has two mortgages and a bunch of payday loans and they make 35000 a year, but they've spent 30000 at your establishment, you have a duty to intervene. You have some kind of social obligation towards this individual and their families. You know, the thing that strikes me here that's unique about the United States, U.S. culture, we believe in this rugged individualism. I should be able to make whatever choices I want. That's, you know, part of my notion of civil liberties is that you shouldn't restrict me from being able to make these choices. And yet we do it in other ways, as you mentioned. You mentioned, for example, drinking. If I'm a bartender and I continue to serve someone that I know is at risk, I can be held liable. If I own the bar and something happens when someone leaves my establishment, I'm held legally responsible and liable. And yet, as you mentioned with gambling, all of the onus is on the individual to recognize there's a problem and that social responsibility and connection is different. I'm also thinking here about advertising, right? We we finally, as a country, realize maybe we shouldn't advertise tobacco products on television. And yet we don't seem to have those same bumpers and barriers when it comes to gambling. What's the role of advertising here? And do you think that more could be done in that space to reduce some of the challenges that you see? You know, there are two studies out of Australia that show that little kids remember the sports wagering advertising, can repeat the terms, know the names of the vendors, and a good proportion of, in a second survey of the adolescents that they surveyed, intend to gamble as soon as they can. And let's add into this, and I know it's not the focus of what you're talking about, but I think it's an important piece, loot boxes and video games, which are gambling. So let's start with five-year-olds playing Roblox, whose parents give them money to buy loot boxes in Roblox. Roblox is priming them to purchase loot boxes at age five. And they're getting that excitement that's generated by loot boxes. Now, fast forward to their teenagers, they're spending huge amounts of, on loot boxes and they're very accustomed to gambling in video games. And now they've got all this advertisement about all this free money, these basically loot box bonuses they can get if they wager on sports wagering platforms. It is such an easy transition across this entire spectrum. I, I have no words right now because I'm thinking about 
how early and how easily and how quickly we prime young people into these behaviors. And as you said, the people who stand to lose the most are young people. These companies are benefiting from it because they're creating lifelong, lifetime people that they can exploit and generate lots of revenue because kids go to school and talk about it with their friends or everyone wants to have this access. For people who are listening to our conversation today, who are sharing the kind of shock that I have, but may be concerned that they may have a problem or that someone they love, a a person in their life may be struggling, what would you say to them about how they can get help and how they can get support? Well, most states, and if you go to the National Council on Problem Gambling website, it, it can link you to your state. Um, There are hotlines that also can inform you, but most states have free counseling for gambling. And, you know, states like where I am in New Jersey also treat the family members because they stand to lose an enormous amount and they can be homeless through no fault of their own and through no knowledge of their own. So I would say the first thing is see if your state offers this state sponsored treatment and avail yourself of it, even if you're not the individual who's gambling. This is a conversation that I hope people will listen to and take heart because as you said, even if it's not you as an individual who may be dealing with this challenge, we could be connected to people who are. And what do we do as a unit, as a community, in order to support that? Leah Nauer is professor and director of the Center for Gambling Studies at Rutgers University. Leah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You can find links to resources on treating gambling addiction by visiting our website. It's ctpublic.org disrupted. When we return, Derek Bito from Arizona State University. He'll talk about the role that gambling plays in the future economies of Indian tribes. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Before 2018, few places in the U.S. were free to own and operate casinos and gaming halls. One of those places was on Native American land. Today, 245 tribes operate over 500 casinos across the U.S. And after a difficult pandemic, the industry is starting to rebound to pre-pandemic levels. But with that increase in competition of sports betting in many states, what's the future of Indian gaming? Derek Bitso is Director of Indian Gaming and Tribal Self-Governance Programs at Arizona State's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. He's also a member of the Navajo Nation. Derek, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. The gaming industry makes up about $30 billion in revenue each year for tribal communities. And still there is that misunderstanding about how Indian gaming works. So for our listeners, give us a sense of what modern gaming looks like within that industry and how the money is actually used. To really understand Indian gaming, you kind of have to do a little bit of history and understand that tribes have always had their own games of chance and their own cultures and traditions. And um, the modern day gaming is really an offshoot of that traditional forms of gamesmanship that tribes participate in. 
And so in the 1980s, the U.S. Supreme Court looked at Indian gaming and determined that tribes had the inherent authorities as governments to regulate their own gaming activities within their own communities. And of course, at that time, the states were challenging this authority. And so you had uh, a win for Indian tribes, but this led to legislation called the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, where Congress is really trying to balance the interests between the state governments and the tribal governments. So the way that Indian gaming works today is you really have to think about Indian gaming revenue as an alternative to tax revenue that tribes use for government services and programs for their communities and their citizens on the ground. So you really have to think about gaming, not in the context of commercial gaming. You know, if you go to Las Vegas, you see a bunch of different gaming enterprises, but a lot of that is a private economy and not necessarily used for government services and programs. So for tribes, by law, by the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, tribes have to use the revenues that they receive from gaming to support the programs and services for the people in their community and the surrounding communities as well. Uh, One of the things that folks don't really understand is that there's a huge benefit to the local community, including the non-Indian community, as far as jobs provided, revenue that gets circulated within the local community, and then revenue that gets shared with the state as well through what are called gaming compacts, which are agreements between states and tribes that basically are negotiated to determine how the gaming is to be conducted within the state's jurisdiction. I think that distinction is so important that when you are talking about Indian gaming, that that revenue goes to, as you said, infrastructure programs and support of people. And that I think pushes back against this misunderstanding that it's just about generating revenue and profit that people just keep, but it's actually investing back in the community. That for me always raises this question of not just who benefits, but the ways in which people benefit when we talk about new gaming products that come into the United States and who gets to control things like sports betting, for example. How do you think that the legalization of sports betting nationwide could have an impact on the Indian gaming industry? That's an interesting question. And I think it's one that we're grappling with right now in real time. And so now states are one by one looking at sports wagering and sports betting as a new opportunity to to receive revenue through these operations. Uh, What's interesting about this is that the gaming compacts that I mentioned earlier, a lot of tribes have entered into gaming compacts with states as early as the 80s and through the 90s and the 2000s. And part of those compacts oftentimes are provisions that provide exclusivity for Indian tribes with respect to gaming within the state. So Arizona, the state that I'm in right now, uh, has such a provision within its compact prior to the new amendments that just went into effect 2021. But that um, basically guaranteed that any gaming that took place within the state would happen on Indian lands in the Indian casino. Um, I'm thinking about the class three gamings uh, operations uh, with the blackjack and the roulette and the poker, those type of gaming facilities. Uh, The tribes had an exclusive, I guess, market with respect to gaming. So now uh, you enter into uh, online gaming and there's this opportunity to provide you know, mobile wagers and mobile bets. And so sometimes states that have tribes within their jurisdiction um, might need to go back to the tribes and negotiate to be able to offer gaming within the state on that broader basis because they might have language within the compact that they agreed to earlier that said that the tribes would have the exclusive authority to offer gaming within the state. So if you're looking in a newspaper or you're seeing articles or 
whatever type of media that talks about sports betting in Indian tribes, most likely the negotiations that are going on are because legally they have to happen before gaming can be operated within the state. Do you think that there's a particular model or approach that works best for tribal nations? So I'm thinking Michigan, you know, it has a sort of exclusive rights to the nations. Montana, it's run entirely by the state. So do you think there's one approach that is most beneficial? Or does it go back to, as you were saying, what is the relationship between the tribes and the state and what works best in that area? Yeah, I mean, I think you'll have to see, you know, everything has to be done on a fact-by-fact basis, right? Certain states will have different relationships with tribes, uh, either good relationships or bad relationships, and that will definitely come into play. Depending on the number of tribes within the state, there are over 100 tribes in the state of California. There are about 22 in Arizona. They're about in the 40s in Oklahoma. So depending on the state, you might have, you know, numbers, issues. Uh, Connecticut has two tribes in the state that offer sports betting. And uh, I understand that they're doing relatively well. And so for, for some tribes, you know, different approaches might work. And then for other tribes, other approaches might work. You mentioned California, and so I want to go there because California as a state is one of the largest states and is holding off on implementing sports betting until it hears from the voters. And so this fall, there'll be two ballot questions related to sports betting. Walk us through those two ballot questions and what impact or signal you think they could have, not just for California, but really across the U.S.? Sure. So um, a number of states have already implemented sports betting. I think Michigan was one of the first with tribes in it to do so. The California tribes have had the opportunity to see how sports wagering has played out in each of the different states. They've seen it, you know, in the different systems. And so what's on the ballot initiative now are really kind of two different approaches. Uh, One would be um, the mobile betting approach that's in Arizona and Michigan, where you have third parties like fan duels and other entities that come in and play kind of that middleman party with respect to the operations. And they really um, help to create the platforms for offering bets uh, throughout the state in any locations. So that's one of the ballot measures uh, that's being offered to the, to the folks in California. The other is being supported by a large number of tribes, and this one would uh, limit sports wagering to just brick-and-mortar sports wagering facilities on Indian lands and Indian reservations. So you can kind of look at it as the current model for Indian gaming in California, but with an additional gaming opportunity in those brick-and-mortar facilities. And the tribes have pointed to this version as the version that most respects tribal sovereignty and tribal authority, and they've been pointed to the other version as really benefiting out-of-state parties and uh, potentially impacting uh, revenues for those programs and services that tribes provide that we talked about earlier. It sounds from what you're saying that these ballot questions aren't just about gaming, but on a broader level, it's about respecting sovereignty and respecting the autonomy of people to decide what's best for their area. And I know that has not just been a historical struggle, but as you mentioned, is ongoing. But I want to ask you about a recent development that fits in somewhat here. And that is that President Biden has now appointed a new U.S. Treasurer or has announced his intention to appoint Lynn Malerba, who is lifetime chief 
of the Mohegan tribe here in Connecticut. That's happening at the same time that the White House has announced it will create this Office of Tribal and Native Affairs at the Treasury. Do you think we're finally starting to turn a corner in the U.S. when it comes to respecting that the connection between sovereignty, economic development and intent? Or do you think it's too early to say whether we're moving forward on that path? I think we've been moving forward on that path uh, for a long time now, as far as advocates and folks on the ground doing the work. The Biden administration has made a number of commitments to Indian tribes before the election, and they've been doing their best to follow through on that. We've seen a, a number of federal judges that are appointed that are Native. We've seen this recent announcement of this post for Chief Malerba. Congratulations to Chief Malerba. She's an awesome individual and the perfect person for that job. And so uh, I think Indian country in general is is feeling very supported by the administration right now. But a lot of the issues that we were talking about earlier are kind of happening at the state level. So with respect to Indian gaming under the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, that is actually occurring under the regulatory body of the National Indian Gaming Commission, which is a body that rests within the Department of Interior. And so that kind of follows that model that you're discussing with Chief Malerba and the Biden administration having a little bit more fingers on the pulse of what's going on. And so when you um, look at sports betting, uh, tribes are finding themselves in a situation where the gaming that's being offered is not being offered in the way that they're used to. It's not one system nationally. It's being you know conducted in various states in different ways. And so that's really kind of the issue in California and and, and in other states as well. Let's talk then about how what's happening at the national level, what's happening at the state level, and how it all connects. A lot of people have been talking about the U.S. Supreme Court this session for overturning Roe v. Wade and for kicking this decision back to the states. But there are also two key cases or rulings that the justices made this year that relate to the things that we talk about. One out of Texas about whether tribes can operate bingo halls, another out of Oklahoma about prosecuting crimes in Indian country. How influential do you think that these two cases are to the kinds of concerns that you've mentioned today about Indian gaming, about sovereignty, and about the path forward? Sure. So the Isleta del Sur case that you referenced earlier was a huge victory for the two tribes in Texas, the Isleta del Sur tribe and the Alabama Cushada tribe. They were operating these bingo halls on Indian lands, and so it falls into that framework, arguably, of the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. What was at issue in that case was whether or not it was actually within the jurisdiction of the state. The state of Texas was saying that they should regulate those bingo halls. The court actually sided with the tribes and said that uh, the language within you know, the statute at issue uh, evidence that there was no intention by Congress to delegate that regulatory authority to the state. And so the tribes could offer their class two bingo operations on par with other tribes throughout the United States under the Indian Game Regulatory Act. So that was a huge victory and put those tribes in Texas on the same playing field as other tribes throughout the United States with respect to class two gaming. So that was a good victory. Uh, the Castro Huerta decision was actually a criminal law case, and that basically said that when it comes to criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians that commit crimes against Indians within Indian territory, 
that the state has concurrent jurisdiction with the federal government to prosecute those crimes. Prior to last week, everybody had understood that that was exclusively federal jurisdiction. And so it adds another layer of criminal jurisdiction within Indian country, but only with respect to crimes committed by non-Indians against Indians. And there was some language in that case that I think a lot of folks in Indian country were a little bit upset about. There was um, kind of a presumption that was included in there that presumes state jurisdiction over Indian country. And I think tribes will probably see maybe future challenges in, in other areas outside of criminal justice that cite to this decision. And I think tribes are you know, on the same page and trying to figure out strong legal arguments and, and ways to, um, to address that in the future. As we come to the close of our time together, I want to ask a question that looks ahead to the future, because we see so many tribal nations who are pushing to diversify their economies to say, we need to have these multiple ways to fund the kinds of projects to support people the way that you mentioned at the top of the conversation, and now looking at things like manufacturing or renewable energy, in addition to gaming in particular areas. As we look ahead to the future, what is it that you see or that we should be focusing on when we think about tribal economies in the future? Sure, and I appreciate the question. I think it's so important, and I think a lot of tribes are really in this stage of trying to diversify their revenue streams. Uh, Indian gaming has been a huge blessing to a lot of tribes. They realize that, but I think a lot of tribes are uh, seeing about other ways uh, where they can enter into a lot of it is hospitality industries, right? So you see a lot of tribes that are developing, you know, down the street from me is the Gila River Indian Reservation. They have a Firebird Raceway. They just signed a contract to host games for the local professional soccer team. And so you'll see that the tribes are really looking at this as economic development, like cluster economic development, right? So you have an anchor being a tribal casino, and then you have other types of uh, facilities that kind of sprout out from there, gas stations, convenience marts. And that's so important for tribes for a number of reasons. One, there's not a huge private economy on Indian reservations, so it creates a private economy in a lot of respects. It brings people into the reservation to help support the Indian tribe by, with their dollars, and it provides jobs for the citizens on the reservation and also for folks living around Indian reservations. Uh, so for tribes, I think the more they can diversify their economies, the more they can think about areas where they can um, bring in revenue, I think the better. And so when you think about tribal economies, I think you have a lot of young, intelligent, bright minds on the ground that are thinking about those next steps and what to do with the economies on the reservation. And so I think the future is bright. I think we have a lot of great professionals out there and a lot of bright minds. And, and, and that always gives me comfort in, in looking towards the future. Derek Bietzo is Director of Indian Gaming and Tribal Self-Governance Programs at Arizona State's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. He's also a member of the Navajo Nation. Derek, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you for the invite. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble-Wolf, J. Carlisle Larson, and Katie Talarski. Our interns are Anya Grandowski and Mira Raju. You can listen to all of the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcast. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. You can listen when it works for you. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.